Thank you very much for having me. I too, sadly, am going to use a PowerPoint. My only excuse is that I missed yesterday's lecture entirely. So, so forgive me for that. Um, so thank you very much for having me. Um, very fast to be asked. I just need to press that button, don't I? There we go. Right. So, it was Simon Lancaster, a name I'm sure will be familiar to you, who said every great speech is built around a single brilliant theme. So today I immediately have a problem because my theme is Ronald Reagan, the legendary American politician, Jaws, the legendary um, film blockbuster, and the cycle of grief, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's illustration of how we process trauma and how we get over it and move on to the next day. So my task is to pull all that together in 20 minutes, um, hopefully by arguing successfully that every great narrative, every great drama, every great piece of journalism, every great articulation of thought shares the same underlying brilliant structure. So, the subtitle I have there is What Great Political Speech Writing Takes From Drama. So to begin with, I want to begin um, with that. It's so the 1964 American presidential election. In 1964, there was a general agreement that the Republican Party would never achieve power in the US ever again. Why was that? Well, um, well actually, four years later, they were in power. And actually, 12 years after that, they created a complete Republican neoliberal revolution. And they did it simply by telling a story. Okay. So that's the story I want to tell you, how they did that. But before we do that, just want to go back to some drama principles of what a story is. This is ridiculously simplistic. But fundamentally, a story, the way we teach story structure, is man has a problem, they beat the problem, they save the world. Okay. A woman has a problem, beats the problem, saves the world. Okay, it's very, very simple, very, very clear um, underlying structure. How it works in drama is you fall in love with the protagonist. You become effectively them. It's classic empathy. You find yourself in somebody else's mind. They are your avatar. You go on the emotional journey with them. That's how it works. We become them. We want the goal they want. We go on the journey with them. We want to vanquish the person they want to vanquish. And together we save the world. So we become James Bond. We confront our problem. We beat the problem. We save the world. And in classic archetypal story structure, um, going all the way back to the fairy tales of our childhood, we get the girl. Um, or in the female version, the Pride and Prejudice version, we get the man. We are rewarded with sexual congress. It's one type of reward in particular. Okay. So there's a few things about that that are really important. The first thing, fundamentally, is this will not work without empathy. Okay. So there's a film, Black Mass, and there's another film, The Program. Uh, the first one is about the gangster James Whitey Bulger, Chicago gangster, and the second one is about Lance Armstrong, the cyclist who obviously lost his career through drug taking. Both of these films uh, were hotly tipped as Oscar favourites last year. Both died an immediate death when they were released. Nobody went to see them. Um, they are available very, very cheaply uh, in a number of stores I can recommend. Um, they don't work. And they don't work for some 
really obvious reason is you don't care. Why, do you, why would you care about Lance Armstrong? Well, there's a way to do that, but the way the programme tells the story is he's horrible. He's nasty, he's evil, he takes drugs, he gets found out, he's unrepentant, uh, and then he's unrepentant. He doesn't change. It's a, it's a appallingly unempathetic character. In the terms of James White's budget, well, yes, of course, you can tell fantastically exciting stories about gangsters. You secretly want to be like you want to be Al Pacino in The Godfather, but James Whitey Bulger is not that person. He's just a ruthless, utterly charmless psychopath. Um, why would you want to be that? Well, some people might, but largely you don't. So empathy against to die. The second thing in all great drama is simply that you have to have a common enemy. You have to have a shark. Okay, it's very, very simple. The clearer the enemy is, the more you hate the enemy, the more engrossing the film. Hitchcock was who said, um, the better the villain, the better the picture. And it really is as simple and as obvious as that. Which brings us back to 1964 and the Republican Party and the problem they had. The problem actually goes back a bit further, because it goes back, of course, to 1963 and a fairly popular, fairly popular US president, uh, John F. Kennedy, who, of course, in November of that year, is the appalling... Um, original sin of American history is assassinated uh, and a nation is plunged into collective grief. Republicans as much as anybody else because of the guilt they feel, partly because he was shot in Texas, down south, heavy Republican territory. The whole nation is convulsed with grief and a feeling that this is wrong. So, President Lyndon Johnson is sworn in immediately and very cleverly, although I don't think he saw it as clever, he just did it, he had one simple message. Let us continue. Let us pay the ultimate tribute to this man. Let us pay tribute to this man who died for us and continue and pass his social reforms. Let us pass the Civil Rights Bill. Let us transform America into the vision that Kennedy had all along. It's an incredibly powerful message and, of course, it was incredibly successful. It's the largest majority in US history. Extraordinary election win. If you look at the figures, even to this day, he's sworn in on a programme. And this is, I think, I was actually shocked when I started to look into this. High taxes, running a deficit, public health programme, and a reduction in wealth inequality. Left pretty much of any mainstream party in Europe now, left of a good three quarters of the Labour Party now, and as I said, uh, uh, achieved the highest majority in US history. It's an extraordinarily different world when you think about it. Okay. So he was a very gifted politician. He was insanely popular. popular. It helped also that his rival was pretty useless. Okay. It's a right-wing senator, cranky, borderline, not even borderline, they were racist politics disguised to be borderline. It was kind of the southern strategy before the southern strategy really took hold. His name was Perry Goldwater, largely written out of the history books now, conducted an appalling campaign. He was largely incredibly inarticulate in what he had was looks. He was a war hero. He was a pilot. He had those things going for him. So some people found it enigmatic and charismatic, but largely he failed miserably. He said things like 
He said the income tax, all income tax does is create criminals. Which is <laughs> probably true in some respects. Um, but he was decimated in the worst defeat in living memory. The Republican Party was dead. And everyone said there will never, ever be a Republican president ever again. Okay. But what's interesting about this was so, oh, at that point, someone supporting Goldwater stood up and made a speech. So some of you may well be familiar with this speech, or certainly be familiar with the character who made it. But because in that speech lay the seeds of the party recovery uh, and eventual triumph in the coming decades. So he was introduced very modestly then election day, November 1964, broadcast on CBS, sponsored by the TV for Goldwater Miller campaign, the announcer softly intoned, ladies and gentlemen, we take pride in presenting a thoughtful election address by, of course, Ronald Reagan. He wasn't a politician at that stage. He was a spokesman of General Electric. There we are, that's from the speech itself, three little clips from there. And it's an extraordinary speech. Even now, for all its datedness and content and delivery, it's an extraordinary powerful speech. You can see it on YouTube, it still exists, and in Republican circles to this day, it is still known as the speech. It is a speech he honed over many years as a spokesman for General Electric and growing his political base. Um, so by the time he got to television, it was honed to perfection. As we know, whatever our persuasion, it's hard to deny, he was an incredibly charismatic speaker. He was down to earth, he spoke the language of his audience. Mostly he instinctively empathised. But what he did was he told a story. He structured a rather beautiful story. He didn't harangue us for not agreeing with him. He told his story in classic empathetic fashion, as if we were him, he were us. It's an immediate emotional connection. Ethos, I think speechwriters call it. He begins immediately by, I'm you. I was a Democrat. Okay. So we were on his side. He created an enemy and a goal. And of course that goal was the classic goal of all uh, speechwriters. It's freedom. All politicians, not all speechwriters. <laughs> It'd be slightly unusual. Okay. So what he did, he was... Now it's a structure, he was Chief Brody, and the enemy was the shark, and he was very, very clever at delineating why his audience should hate that shark, that that shark had to be defeated at all costs, and we had to rise up and defeat that shark, that natural Democrats, people who had never once considered voting Republican, found themselves going, oh God, you've got a point. I've never thought of that before. Of course. Wow. We've got to kill the shark. And of course, what was interesting was what the shark was. And it's a shark that's now very, very familiar, but then really wasn't. The shark was big government. Okay, very simple. These are quotes from the speech. A government that is no longer servant, but now master of the people. A patronising liberal elite who want to tell you how to live your life. Welfare scroungers. Big theme, the woman whose husband made $250 a month but who asked for a divorce when she discovered she could make $330 on aid to dependent children. All while you were trying to get your kids through school and work a bit harder to reward them. The state is stealing your money, welfare claimants are stealing your money, the undeserving are being unfairly rewarded, you work hard, they reap the reward. 
this is not the frontier spirit, this is not America. It's in very patriotic, but in a down-to-earth way. But what he did very cleverly was he positioned himself as the little man. The, bar, the man next door, the, 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 the virtues of small town America. And what he did very subtly was invite us to stand up to a government that pretty much he painted as a Stalinist tyranny. Didn't use those words, but that was pretty much the effect of what he was saying. And whatever your politics, it was a compelling and extraordinary performance. And what he discovered, that, this is from a biography of Reagan, he discovered that the best measure of a politician's success was not how successfully he could broker people's desires, but how well he could tap their fears. I'm sure this is familiar with you, but soon there was a them in every speech, obviously, of course. And so all those folks who were angry at domestic disorder, at immorality, at crime, most of whom would never consider themselves calling themselves conservatives, some of whom had long called themselves liberals, now had a side to join. And of course, it was his side. And within four years, there was a Republican president. There we go. And in 12 years, despite Watergate, which you'd think a party would certainly never, ever recover from, he was in power and ushered in a world neoconservative free market world that was described in that speech back in 1964 that was anathema to the entire population. The world pretty much we're living in and certainly arguing about today. That's an extraordinary political transformation. And of course <laughs> it's using exactly the same methods that Donald Trump uses and of course that Bernie Sanders uses and, of course, that any great populist movement of whatever persuasion, the greatest popular long word to use in this context, any populist movement uses all the time, which is you have an enemy, you identify with the speaker, you kill the shark. It's insanely seductive because it's Hollywood, isn't it? It's Hollywood. It's all narrative. So on one level, politics and political oratory is the art of storytelling, Certainly that. We know that if you tell a story, you get much greater emotional engagement. You go on a journey much more clearly. But on another level, too. So, this is Groundhog Day. I'm sure it's a film that some, if not all of you, are familiar with. It's a, yeah, I'm sure most people consider it a comic masterpiece. Um, but it tells the story of Bill Murray, who wakes up one day and finds himself stuck in time and can't move on until he changes. He has to learn to change. And what he has to learn to do is be human. He has to learn to empathise. He has to learn to show love and kindness. And until we do that, he won't be able to get out of this world he's trapped in. Now, the interesting thing about this, apart from the fact that it's a very well-written film, is that in the DVD commentary that accompanies the release, Harold Ramis, who wrote and directed the film, said that he based the film on Kubler-Ross's cycle of grief. Okay, now, um, I'm sure most of you are aware of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and me, and it's now become a kind of template work, if you like. It's the way we process grief, the way we process trauma. There are five stages, she argued. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Okay, you learn 
and you change. You don't want to admit there's a problem. You get angry that there is a problem. Then, ah, there is a problem. I'm going to have to argue with the problem and negotiate with the problem. Oh, no, I'm really depressed that there's a problem. I've accepted there's a problem. And you move on. Okay, that's the Kubler-Ross cycle of grief. And, of course, it is exactly the structure of Groundhog Day because that's what Bill Murray does in five very clear acts. Okay. And if you look at Jaws, you'll see exactly the same structure too, because of course all film is about, all drama, all narrative is about how a character learns and changes. Now the change isn't great in Jaws, but it's Chief Brody learning the courage to overcome fear, his fear of water in particular, and kill the shark. The ordinary, everyday little man, the Ronald Reagan figure, who has to rise up to smite a mighty foe bigger than himself. And if you look at it carefully, we don't have time to analyse the structure in detail now, he goes on exactly the same journey as Bill Murray does in Groundhog Day. And exactly the same journey you'll find, not just in every film, but every Shakespeare play, clearly demarcated by the five acts that Shakespeare traditionally wrote in, because that's how narrative structure works. Narrative structure is articulating the process by which we learn. And film is, in a sense, the process on which we learn. It's the learning cycle. If you've ever taught, you'll be familiar with this, the concept of the learning cycle, the concrete experience, observation and reflections, conceptualizations and generalizations, experimenting and testing new structure, accepting it. It's the same cycle, the cycle of grief, is the learning cycle. It's how you process information, isn't it? So in simple terms, how do we process information? How does perception work? Well, baby touches match, cries. Okay, that's fundamentally how we perceive the world. Um, you listen to me, you come here, you listen to me, you change. Now, that doesn't mean you agree with me. You absolutely don't have to agree with me whatsoever. But whatever you do, you can't help but change after you've heard this, even if you disagree with everything I say, because that's how it works. Baby touches, match, changes. Every second, every millisecond of every day, fundamentally. But that's dramatic structure. I exist. Chief Brody overcomes fear, kills the shark. Hopefully he's not crying at the end of it, but that's, this is the tragic version. This is the Shakespearean tragic version of dramatic structure. Okay, and you'll see it again, you'll see it here. I just picked this up, somebody actually sent it to me. This is, um, apparently, I'm not an expert on drug rehabilitation, but it's the process by how addicts cure themselves. Um, Pre-contemplation, you have no intention of changing behavior. Contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, relapse. It's the same cycle, the same shape, once again. We process so information, we go on a spiral until we rid ourselves of the addiction. Okay, so fundamentally, the process by which we learn and change. Which, of course, brings me to the reason why we're here, which is really to talk about speech writing and something of obviously you'll be, I'm sure, incredibly familiar with, um, the six-part speech structure which Cicero articulated right at the beginning of everything. And again, just to remind all of us, you know, the exordium, the pre preparation for the hearer, the narration, you explain the facts of the case, the partition, list what's to be disputed or proven, the confirmation, you make the case by argument, refutation, respond to opponents' arguments, conclusion or peroration, you sum up 
arouse indignity and pity. Okay, and as Simon Lancaster memorably translated it, today we're talking about knife crime. Knife crime has quadrupled since the 50s. We can either tackle it head on or ignore it. By tackling it, we can save thousands of lives every year. If we don't tackle it, lives will be lost, communities will be wrecked, society will be harmed. Join me in my quest to make Britain a safer place. Okay, that's not me, by the way. So I have no idea where that's coming from. That's quite strange, isn't it? But never mind. I'm being heckled anonymously. Um, if you can forgive me, I'll just talk over it if that's okay. Um, or should I just Sorry about that. That's horrible, isn't it? Forgive me. All right, I shall just talk more loudly. Okay. Uh, so, Simon Lancaster's translation of Cicero's speech, which I obviously, Simon Lancaster, a very well known speechwriter, um, argues very clearly this is the structure Tony Blair used. Cameron uses, this is the structure of Ronald Reagan's speech. They all fundamentally use the same shape. But of course, what's interesting about it is, of course, it borrows entirely from narrative structure. Cicero wasn't aware of this, screenwriters aren't aware of this, but it's interesting. Fundamentally, what are stories? Stories are that. Stories are chains of cause and effect lassoed around a truth. Okay, if you, if you look at Jaws, you find this extraordinary moment um, halfway through, what screenwriters will call the midpoint. Same in Groundhog Day, exactly halfway through, Bill Murray discovers the key to how to get out. He doesn't want to accept it at that point, but he discovers it. Exactly halfway through Jaws, Chief Brody goes out to sea despite his fear of water. Okay, so fundamentally dramatic structure, speech structure, you start at the cycle of grief, you start to see there's a similarity, as an extraordinary similarity. You see this all the time in Hamlet, halfway through Hamlet, uh, halfway through every Shakespeare play, something rather amazing happens. So in King Lear, the omnipotent king, uh, at the beginning, halfway through, is naked in a hovel, in a storm on the heath. In Othello, Othello takes Iago's bait. In Julius Caesar, Mark Antony stands up and makes his friend's Romans countryman speech and Brutus is undone. It's the middle of every speech. And in Hamlet, the first half of Hamlet is Who Killed My Father? Exactly halfway through, Act 3, Scene 3, Claudius killed my father. The second half of Hamlet is What Do I Do About It? And what you notice is exactly... Halfway through the cycle of grief, it's the bargaining stage, the midpoint. It's, oh, God, okay, I have to accept the world is different. Now I'm going to have to process that. It's the middle of every speech. Okay. The, the first half of Ronald Reagan's legendary speech is, there is a problem. The second half of Reagan's speech is, what do we do about it? Okay. The centre, the heart, or the confirmation, if you like, is Barry Goldwater thinks we can. Okay, that's the argument. And that speech is entirely constructed with a chain of cause and effect lassoed around a truth. Okay, we can tackle life crime. Okay, it's the truth. So it's the heart of every political speech. And what's extraordinary about this is I think we do this subconsciously. Certainly screenwriters write midpoints unconsciously. Certainly Shakespeare never studied screenwriting. But 
wrote beautiful structures where in Act 3, Scene 3, every time this extraordinary thing happened, a truth that the character learned emerges in the middle of the story. So what I'm arguing fundamentally is that all narrative structure is born from the art of perception. A child learns to stay away from fire, an individual overcomes grief, Bill Murray learns empathy, Chief Brody learns courage, Hamlet learns to avenge his father, we learn the mystery of the heart of the forest, the motif, the into the woods motif. Child in the village goes into the forest, Little Red Riding Hood discovers that huge symbol of male sexuality in the heart of the forest. Halfway through, Reagan learns neoliberalism. We empathise with him because that's how it works. It's film structure. We have a common enemy. And in becoming him, his speech allows us to kill that common enemy and learn that lesson too. Which brings me to the end of what I was going to say. So thank you. (laughs)